Michael. Hey, Diane. It's uh, great to see you three weeks in a row now. Uh, And I'll just report to you that it's the simplest of things, but I confess for me, getting a haircut over the weekend, uh, some five or six months, I think, after my last one, has me feeling like spring is in the air, it's time for a fresh start, and I kind of don't care that all my hair is missing. I just feel good with it (laughs) off. Well, I think you look fantastic, Michael, and I had forgotten what your normal hair actually looks like, so <laughs> it's good to see you again. Um, and I'm resonating with those those feelings. Uh, for the first time in a very long time, I've been able to start planning for the future and next year with our team. And uh, well, you know that what used to be routine that we would plan well in advance now sort of feels like a luxury after this year of being mostly responsive to just constantly changing totally uncertain day-to-day realities of being in the pandemic and um while we still have a really long way to go there it's i noticeably feel a difference in our ability to think long-term strategic uh, strategically uh, which is honestly i believe exactly what is needed after the year we've been having and so like you i'm excited to be together three weeks in a row um it's always great to talk with you michael um and we get another special guest today so i'm really excited about that um you know during these these three weeks we have really been trying to tap into some experts in key areas in, in education um, to talk about their work at a deeper level. Yeah, and we've obviously, as we mentioned last week as well, we started noticing that a number of topics kept recurring in our discussions. And so we wanted to set aside these weeks to do a deeper dive into them. Last week, we had a really rich conversation, of course, with the co-founders of Transcend Education, Elon and Jeff. And they really illuminated what it takes for schools to design for the future and why that's so critical, especially right now. And next week, just to preview that for folks, uh, we'll be talking with Marguerite Rosa, who's a leader in the world of education finance. And I'm fascinated personally to hear what she is learning and thinking about when it comes to the significant federal dollars in particular that'll be flowing to schools and, and how they can best be leveraged, Diane. Certainly. Uh, We heard from Elon and Jeff ways that such funds could be used wisely. And so I'm really um, interested, like you, in in connecting those two conversations. And I'm really curious um, to understand what's actually happening out there in the world of finance. Um, But but, but before we get to that, I'd love to introduce our guest for today. Uh, John Bailey is with us. He has been a longtime fixture on education and policy on on that scene, going all the way back to when he was the Director of Education Technology for the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Um, He then served in the Bush administration for several years in both the Department of Education and the White House. And Diane, I should make a note here that it was John who actually took me for a meal in the White House mess for the first time, not even my own brother who was actually Mm -hmm. serving in the administration at the same time. So always appreciative to John for that. Well, Michael, I've I've personally never been to the White House mess even once, uh, but the name does strike me as as not the best brandy decision (laughs) in the world. Um, I, however, had the good fortune of sharing a fun meal or two with John over the years, um, during which I always learn something and I always laugh. And uh, John has some of the cutest dogs in the world, I will add. Um, And so there there is that. So this is true. But before we go 
too far astray, excuse the pun. Uh, in seriousness, I'll just add, D Diane, that John has also served in several roles with some of the major foundations in education reform, the Gates Foundation, as well as currently with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and the Walton Family Foundation. In addition to stints with uh, Excellence in Education, he was one of the co-founders of Whiteboard Advisors, and currently also the American Enterprise Institute, the uh, think tank. And, and so he's seen a lot and done a lot of impressive work in the field of education. And, and John, welcome. It is, it's so good to see you. Welcome. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for uh, for having me. I'm sorry we're not doing this at the White House mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, next time, right? When, when we're all back in person. <laughs> but look, over the last year, we found ourselves repeatedly talking about, quote, the science of COVID and often referencing and returning to the CDC guidance for school or for a period of time, the lack thereof, and the research behind it. And in fact, you know, we've referenced this stuff so often that we realized we, we really want to just do a deep dive into it. And so, so first, thank you for being here to help us think, think through these issues. But for those listening, it, it might not be obvious up front why you're the perfect person to help us through this topic. So I'd love you just to actually give your background on that just by starting to describe the project that you've been working on uh, basically since the pandemic began of organizing a lot of information for all of us to help make sense of it. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, it's a weird, like in my sort of eclectic background, uh, when I worked at the Department of Commerce back in uh, 2005 and 2006, one of the responsibilities I had was uh, managing the pandemic preparedness strategy uh, for the secretary, the secretary of commerce in participating in the, the White House working group that included Dr. Tony Fauci. And this, this sort of laid out the first national strategy and preparedness plan. And so when COVID hit, it, it just was oddly familiar because there were a lot of issues that we had been thinking about back then, including the role of school closures and flattening the curve. If you remember this time last year, it's all we were talking about. And, um, and so, uh, so that, that I was drawing on that experience. And plus um, what sort of grew out of some of the work for Chan Zuckerberg and for the Walton Family Foundation of just trying, if you, if, again, going back to this time last year, we were all trying to keep track of what states had closed uh, schools, when were they going to reopen? Because if you remember, I mean, it just sounds so foreign right now. But back then, it was like we had some schools that were planning to reopen at the end of May, some at the yes. end of April. And so just trying to track that plus track all the resources um, led to sort of like a, a daily email that went out to the, a couple of the funders and we extended it uh, to another group of funders. And so there's been sort of a daily email summarizing what's been going on with COVID at the federal level, the state level, international research, and just some of the resources that have been coming up. That's super fascinating. And I didn't even understand all the origins of, of that initial work, but... <laughs> What has come of it is your work has been really helpful to, and I will speak specifically for our school network, um, and I know to many others because you know you have expanded beyond that sort of daily email um, and uh, and are giving information to all of us now, and and I just. I'm not sure if folks realize what the day-to-day -day has looked like for school systems over the past year. Um, so perhaps let me just share a quick example that I think will illustrate how this has been helpful. Um, you know, beginning in late February, early March, you know, 2020, where you're taking us back, um, we formed a small team in my organization that has been monitoring federal, state, and local health guidelines, as well as the science and the research on COVID um, from the beginning. And that team, literally has worked on this every single day since the pandemic began. 
Um, they provide our organization, you know, these sort of daily summaries that you're talking about to all of the school leaders and the network leaders. And we literally have people as part of their job following all of this. And even they are often needing to rely on summaries from people like you because the information is so voluminous and it is changing so frequently. And, you know, this is on top of the job that they were already doing that was super busy and, and crazy. And so I'm wondering, John, given your work on this project um, and how close it, you've been to it, can you give us a sense of the scope of what you've been looking at and curating? It's hard for me to even wrap my head around it at this point and sort of, you know, scope that out over the year, how it's evolved and changed over the last year. And, and I mean, then if you had to summarize your key takeaways from it, what would they be? When schools began closing, uh, and all the shift to remote learning, it, it just changed for a lot of the funders that I support and work with and, and others that I that um, are just working with more informally. Everyone was trying to rush to what is it that they can do? There were immediate digital divide needs. Uh, there were immediate sort of resource needs uh, in terms of making sure there were high quality online content. And then there was just trying to understand like what was unfolding because, you know, and I, I feel like we're still in this a little bit. Like there's a COVID fog. Like it is really hard to see uh, two weeks ahead, much less like a month ahead, much less six months ahead. And, and that was very true at this point last year, where again, like we thought, we actually thought that some schools may reopen before the end of the school year. And then all of a sudden that wasn't the case. And then it was like, what happens over the summer? And then what does fall look like? And things are just, were changing so rapidly. Uh, and on top of that, you had um, various federal actions that were happening, including um, the CARES Act. Uh, you had uh, other sort of federal legislation that was getting debated and resources were getting put out. And you had a lot of decisions getting made, too, by governors. Uh, some governors were doing statewide closures. Others were giving a lot more flexibility to schools. And just keeping track of all that was, was super difficult. Uh, the other thing that, that we were doing is that there were studies coming out um, uh, around our understanding of COVID and the risks it presented for students. Um, it, uh, it answers related to whether uh, children transmitted the virus as efficiently as adults do. And that, that's a key issue for reopening schools because if uh, kids are transmitting the virus, reopening schools could lead to a surge of the virus in the community. It could put teachers at risk. Um, and then there was a whole nother sort of bucket of research around just lived experience, like what was happening with schools that were opening and closing in Europe. And, uh, and so we were just trying to summarize each of those different studies. What, what, what I realized about two months ago is that those studies sort of come out sometimes here in the United States, we get fixated on one study. Like there was a study that came out of Wisconsin that sort of dominated um, the debate for like a week. But there was no place that was sort of aggregating all the research and just sort of putting it out there because, you know, again, like evaluating the science and making decisions based on science, it's not, it's not one study. You're often trying to look at a, a collective body of research. Sometimes it has contradictory uh, conclusions and often uh, uh, conclusions that are, are far from sort of perfect. There's always sort of exceptions and some, uh, some caveats to it. And it's a lot, it's a lot, Diane, to, to your point, for a team within a school, for state policymakers to sort of just try to wrap their heads and just try to get a handle on all this. And so we released a report uh, about three weeks ago now, about a month ago, that just summarized 130 studies. 
And that's what it did. It, it, it was an, an attempt to just list the studies and summarize it so that people could wrestle with the, the conclusions of each of those studies and come up with their own, uh, their own conclusions. But it had just struck us that no one had done that before, not the CDC, not the Department of Ed. And that really put uh, school systems leaders like yourself at a disadvantage and put state policymakers at a disadvantage because they just were making decisions with incomplete uh, information to, to, in many respects. John, just to follow up on that, I'm, I'm curious, you know, now that you've published that a month ago, you're able to sit back a little bit, I think, and, and, and look at, you know, sort of what you've gleaned. But you've also been synthesizing a lot of these takeaways and articles for Education Next and elsewhere from almost day one of the pandemic. What what are your big headlines or takeaways at this point with what we know now? It, so I, I am still, uh, I think it was absolutely right for us to close schools uh, at this time last year. And that's because, you know, again, going back to 2005, pandemic playbooks have always held school closures as one of the most vital strategies for slowing the spread of the virus. And the reason for that is because kids are like excellent uh, vectors of transmitting the virus. We just know this. We know this from influenza. We know this from most sort of respiratory illnesses. But we know two things. Kids tend to be the most susceptible to both catching it and having some pretty severe sort of uh, symptoms and consequences from uh, catching that disease. The second, they tend to spread it because they're hugging each other and they're not, you know, they're just running around. And hands are everywhere. Not, yep. Hands are everywhere. Exactly. And so you close schools and it slows the spread of the virus. That made sense when we knew so little about this coronavirus. What, what has emerged, though, is a very different picture where kids are less susceptible to severe disease. And that has proven out time and time again with almost every single new study that comes out. They're not, it's not zero risk, but it's super, super low risk. The people with the highest risk tend to be the um, uh, elderly and people with pre-existing health conditions. Uh, and second, school closures do not seem to have slowed the transmission of the virus. We, 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 it hasn't flattened the curve in the way that uh, we thought it would this time last year. And again, that, that makes sense knowing what we know now about the coronavirus. But the, the thing that I think has been frustrating is that um, our, the actions that we're taking from a policy standpoint, from a local standpoint, just haven't kept up with this sort of emerging body of research or from the lessons learned from uh, schools opening or not opening over in Europe. And so uh, I think if there's anything like you've seen sort of like a, a failure, I want, I want to put this totally on sort of the political leadership. It's not totally Trump. It's not totally sort of Biden. This is like the regulatory sort of body, like the CDC just was was releasing sort of contradictory guidance at times or guidance that was like vague, uh, right? Like you saw this with the, the six foot or the three foot guidance. And so it's like mm -hmm. six oh feet when possible. And like, well, what does that mean? Like when possible? And, and so anything that kind of hedges like that makes it really difficult for a school system leader like Diane to sort of operationalize it. But the other thing it's done, and, the, and this is where I think we're still living right now, is that it's created this huge trust vacuum that if, if you're a parent, yes. particularly a parent from um, uh, a minority uh, a, a, a family of color, you don't know who to trust. You don't know if you should trust your superintendent. You don't know if you should trust uh, your alarmist teacher union. You don't know if you should trust the federal government. And so when you don't know who to trust, you always do the most conservative thing that's going to be the most protective of your kid, and that's keeping your kid at home. Um, and so like, I, I think it makes sense that we've now had some schools reopening but you have a lot of parents who don't know what to do because they don't know who to trust. And uh, we still have this massive trust vacuum that I think is beyond just sort of the, the, the typical sort of uh, political polarization that you know, we also have. It doesn't make it better. 
But I think we have like a, a, a real sort of lack of trust infrastructure in the country right now. John, I think you've really put your finger on it. And this is something Michael and I have come back to over and over and over again, which is why we wanted to do the deep dive. And I just want to go back a minute because I feel like you just said something more clearly than I've heard any person in America say it to date. And so it's worth going back and underlining and putting exclamation points by like, I have read a ton of stuff. I have looked at all of this stuff. I have yet to hear someone say what we know today, a year later, is that our original pandemic strategy, which was sound and smart and should have been put into place to shut schools, did not actually flatten the curve. And I don't know, Michael, have you heard anyone actually not say like that? that? No, no. I mean which just kind of changes the whole conversation right now. If you, if you take that and, you know, that's your takeaway from looking at the collective body of work. And, um, wow, I don't, I don't even know what to say after that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a big statement. It's a big head. Yeah, go ahead, John. I was going to say, you know, weirdly, um, what we're seeing, there's at least five studies that have come out and said the opposite that actually reopening schools is what slowed the spread of the virus. We've seen that in Germany, mm-hmm. another study in France, and then more recently, a study in Canada. And the reason for that makes a lot of sense again, because like where kids are getting infected is in the households where they're not socially distanced, they're not wearing masks, they're not doing sort of a cleaning regimen. Um, but the moment you start reopening schools and putting kids in place, the, the schools are acting as a little bit of a uh, circuit breaker there, in part because kids are wearing masks, there's like a better hygiene that's going into place and things like that. But again, like the whole sort of idea that we had that we were operating and closing schools around last year, that's just sort of been proven to not not be quite as effective. So, so I actually want to take it from there, John, because you know you mentioned it before that when you were um, working at the Department of Commerce and 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 with uh, the Bush administration, um, you know you were working on plans for pandemics, and so. You know, I, I'd love you to actually just sort of, you've sort of taken how one key assumption, I think, in that proved false, but was still the right move that we should have made. Uh, but I guess I'm curious, like, you know, other lessons learned that did not get applied, things that you'd like us to see, you know, prepare for going forward now. Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned another jaw-dropping one, which is that, like, it's not necessarily the political class. It's like our institutions themselves have not done the right things in terms of how they've expressed themselves uh, and, and given guidance and reacted and so forth. So I'm just sort of curious, like, where do we go from here uh, if, if we're trying to prepare ourselves to not have yet you know, another major disaster on our, on our hands in five years from now, if something else breaks out? It's a great question. I think, um, you know, a couple different things, like one of the, one of the first, if you go back to kind of some of the, the first original sins, if you will, of the early sort of pandemic response, when, if you remember this time last year, we had problems with testing. We still have problems yes. with COVID testing, but we had problems with some tests that were bad and like they couldn't scale up testing. And Testing is just super important because like that tells us a lot about the virus itself. It tells us how it's spreading. It tells us if there are people who are super spreaders or events that are super spreaders. Key like differences there because like your strategies for mitigating it uh, make a big difference. And so um, the lack of testing uh, and, and how long it took to scale up testing is something that slowed our response, but it not just slowed the response, it also slowed our our ability to change the the various types of mitigation measures that um, we needed to put in place. I think secondly to that, 
there was just a lack of data and information coming from the federal government. Like you had these amazing volunteer projects that stood up, the COVID tracking project over at the Atlantic. You had Emily Oster set up a, a survey with, uh, with superintendents. You know, you had me with like my sort of like little mini, like very poorly designed like COVID email update. <laughs> and like none of that should happen. Like you, you sh we shouldn't in the midst of a pandemic be relying on volunteers. Volunteers should be complementing a federal response, not replacing it. And I, I think that if anything, going forward, we, we just you just need better data and you need better information because at the end of the day, these decisions are super decentralized. We, we saw that with our pandemic preparedness, uh, uh, just gaming it out back in 2005. And it's proven to be true that governors make a lot of these decisions, mayors make a lot of the decisions, but they can only make good decisions based on the data and the information that they have available. And we just need better, better. Yeah, no, no. Quick question on that, and uh, which is, so is that a resource problem or is it a problem, a process problem? Does that does that make sense? Like, do we need more resources to get a better response, or do we need to have like better processes in place to centralize some of that, or at least cre you know create the proper reactions? It's a little bit of both, but I think it's a lot of process, right? Like again. You know, CD, if you go back to some of the early CDC guidance, the vague, the vagueness of it isn't a resource problem. That's just that's that's a problem of how they sort of communicated it. Creating independence for some of these organizations, some of these health organizations, I think is important too, because you know, again, when you're in a polarized country politically, whatever sort of president uh it, it means like 50% of the country is gonna instinctively not trust what's coming out of the, the administration. We had that supercharged because of Trump, but it was gonna be there regardless of like who is a Republican or a Democrat in office. And the more independence that uh, I think that some of these organizations can get, uh, the better. But um, but a lot of it I think is like process. And, uh, and and some of this is not terribly expensive. Like, you know, the, the fact that, that in October, 2020, no one could tell you what percent of schools were open. Right. Isn't a resource question. Like the Department of Education has the capability of doing that over at IES. They had resources that were given to them by CARES Act and other federal funds to do it. That's a process question. It's just a leadership question. And, mm. uh, and I think it's something that could be fixed going forward. Mm. The last thing, which I'm like super glad, um, I, we've seen this coming out of uh, the American Rescue Plan and also the Biden administration has put uh, more resources behind it is like forecasting. If you think about it, so much of our COVID mm -hmm. data is is uh, retro. It's looking backwards. It's not. It's not like um, you know, which, which is like sort of getting a hurricane forecast of where the hurricane's been, not where it's going. <laughs> and um, and the good news is that there's a there's a number of research groups that are trying to do better forecasting to kind of get a sense of. If you think about like how COVID spread across the U.S., it was in the Northeast. This time last year, then it moved down south, and then it sort of moved up into the Heartland region. We need better forecasting yes. the way we have forecasting for weather to kind of help people again, like Diane, with like planning and and just trying to to get some preparations in place. I, I, that so resonates with me. I just had a conversation this morning where you know in, in California our cases are are going down. We're looking pretty good here, but in Washington State they're on the rise, and this is the third week in a row that they're on the rise and. We're back in school there, we're trying to, but we have no visibility into the future, no guidance whatsoever. Um, oh my goodness. You know, the other thing I'm thinking, Michael, we've, we, we did a bunch of conversations about the new Secretary of Ed and like what the role of that 
department is and how people, the, one of the big things they do is collect and share data, right? <laughs> and so it's interesting that you're tapping back into those, those conversations we had. Um, you, you, have, you have sort of touched this in a couple of ways, but I'm just gonna ask it a little bit more directly, John. Um, you know, one of the observations Michael and I have been making around the health guidance, the science and the research is that they have become very political during the pandemic. Um, my board chair calls these BGOs a, a blinding glimpse of the obvious. So, you know, I didn't just say something really brilliant or anything, but, um, you know, you're, you're a political guy. Uh, are these things actually political? Uh, I mean, you've, you've sort of referenced some other, you know, regulatory parts. I, I, can you just help us unpack this a little bit? I don't even, I don't even, I care less about the why, but, uh, more about is it possible for science and research and expert guidance to be pulled back from that political realm like how do we build back some of that trust how can we actually you do good work as a country you know um what are your thoughts it's a great question i mean it did not help us that it was it was trump i mean trump trump who like does not know nuance and does not know sort of how to message in a way that is sort of bipartisan, I, in a way that I think almost any other president would have. Like, I think mm. um, we've seen this in the past, right? Like with response to, uh, uh, to Haiti or response to Katrina, you had presidents that assembled sort of previous uh, presidents in a bipartisan way to help rally support or to kind of rally uh, a country's energy and, and to unite us. I, I think we like when Trump, the, 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 the demarcation point, I, I think for me was back in July when Trump had a reopening schools event at the White House. And it just it, it just lacked a nuance and messaging. And people are so hardwired that if Trump said X, people go to Y automatically. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that just set us back in some ways that um, tremendously. I think there's that. The second is that the New York Times just had a, an amazing survey that they did a story on about how like um, your partisan leanings do sort of impact how you filter information, that Democrats tend to overestimate the risks with mm -hmm. COVID and Republicans tend to underestimate the hmm. risks. And they do that just by asking people, um, you know, what is the risk of hospitalization and deaths? Mm -hmm. And then they can compare it to the actual numbers. And that sort of orientation means you have very different sort of sense of risk tolerance with um, with incomplete information and what to do in terms of like school reopenings. I think it's one of the reasons why you have Florida that really rushed to reopen schools very quickly, mm -hmm. California that like has taken a very sort of slower approach uh, to it. Uh, is it possible to sort of get out of these political ruts? I would say like, absolutely. Um, but it, it required, we don't, we're not going to naturally gravitate, like gravitate to that. It's going to require leadership that is, is constantly cultivating that sort of sense and making sure we have messengers that are trusted across the political spectrum. That um, is so key. It's key right now with vaccine hesitancy. It's gonna be key with reopening schools. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be key for anything else COVID related is having trusted messengers across the political spectrum that people people trust. No, it's it's helpful, John. And I'm, I'm also thinking sort of the narrative that we tell in the why you take certain actions, right? Even you saying, and, and Diane called it before, like closing schools did not flatten the curve. 
how many people today would say that a lot of the actions we're taking are around flattening the curve as opposed to trying to stop COVID completely? Like we've sort of lost, I think, sight of even the original purpose for certain actions. So with that as prelude, I'd love to end with sort of a magic wand question, if you will, which is uh, given everything you've seen and, and all that you know at the moment standing here right now with still in the fog of COVID, and, and I guess that's on a double meaning, but uh, if you had a magic wand you know, what would schools look like and be doing right now and into next year? Uh, well, I think that the most important thing is that I, I, many of us are assuming schools are going to be able to reopen five days a week and mostly sort of normal school-like conditions at the beginning of the fall. I, I think we should keep that assumption. We need to be also, if anything has taught us over the last year, is to plan for the worst case scenario. And we're seeing two worst case scenarios. One in which that there is a group of parents who are still very fearful and very mm. concerned. They don't know who to trust. And they are not going to feel comfortable until there's a vaccine available for their kids. And we know that a vaccine may be available for certain teenagers this summer, but for younger populations, it's probably late fall, maybe early winter. And so there's a group of parents that are going to just need a longer on-ramp to feel comfortable um, before they start sending their kids back to school. And that could be everything from a vaccine all the way um, into other things. But we have to understand what's making them hesitant and what are the ways to sort of build trust with them. Uh, that's going to be super, super key. I think one of the facets there is COVID testing. COVID testing, because like I, at the end of the day, if you, if you just think about it, like think about Diane and she has teachers and parents and she could say like, look, like we've read all this research. We've done all these things. We're totally compliant with the CDC. And the teacher's like, yeah, but like, how do I really know it's safe for me to come in? And it turns out like COVID testing, uh, I love like Austin Independent School District calls it assurance testing. Like it just gives, it gives numbers mm. that parents and teachers can say, okay, I see that it's working. I see that the incidence cases are low. I see that it's not spreading. I feel safer going back into school. We might need something like that for uh, for going back to school too. Um, I also worry because like we as school systems have to start thinking about, are we gonna make the vaccine mandatory for kids? Oh. Uh, how do we deal with parents who don't wanna get their kids vaccinated? There's that issue. And then third, what's, what's your what's your what's your twenty second take on that? <laughs> I, I think it, I think there's um, we first of all again this is like going back to original sin of not having data. We don't we haven't been polling on this. We haven't been polling on how many parents want to have their kids vaccinated and how many people parents are are hesitant. We knew it was like about thirty percent of parents with just normal vaccines. So I think it's going to be a higher percentage of parents than what uh, we're sort of giving um, what, than what we're sort of acknowledging right now. Uh, and again, how to win over their trust and, and support what those policies should look like. I'm not really sure. Um, the last thing, which is, you know, Michael, right up your alley and Diane too, but like, we need to be thinking about not just like reopening schools, but using this as a catalytic moment. Like, uh, how do we use this at a chance where now, like so many kids have devices, we have better connectivity than before. And we've pushed teachers to kind of get comfortable with like Zoom and all these technologies. Like, how do we use that as a moment to catalyze new models around blended learning yes. uh, and online learning and improve that going forward? And I wish I was hearing a little bit more sort of conversation uh, around that, too, because I think there's a lot of districts and teachers now hungry for that kind of guidance and support and want to do sort of right by by doing a new model going forward. Well, you have the same magic wand we have on that one for certain. Um, we couldn't we couldn't agree with you more. And um, and so 
Wow, thank you. As always, I just learned a whole bunch. Um, super grateful. We could we could spend hours, I think, talking. Um, but we'll invite you uh, every episode, Michael and I end by just sharing a few words about something we're reading, listening to, watching. So if you're up for it, we'd love to to hear what what's got your attention right now. Um, it's well, the the one book uh, that I've been reading is called The Catalyst: How to Change Anyone's Mind by uh, Jonah. Berg, Berger. Mm-hmm. And um, I just started reading in part because like so much of public policy is about changing and persuading people. But also at this moment with uh, COVID, you know, with vaccine hesitancy, um, with, with uh, helping to sort of understand how to communicate. And it's just a fascinating book talking a lot about sort of our sort of built in confirmation biases, how when people try to convince you of something, it actually can make you dig in uh, mm. more. And so um, it's just been sort of fascinating. It's a mix of psychology and sociology and science and just uh, other things, but it's been good to challenge me a little bit in thinking about how to, uh, it's not just persuading with facts and book reports like I just did, but it's also listening to people and engaging people as human beings and giving them room uh, to grow and persuade themselves in essence. Oh, I might be persuaded to move off my fiction kick. Um, as Michael knows, I've been turning my attention to fiction this year, um, but that sounds pretty fascinating. Um, I've really been craving stories and connections and a, a reprieve, quite frankly, from all of the nonfiction news I'm doing as, as my job, basically. Um, but that said, one of the things fiction does for me is pique my curiosity, and I often find myself diving into learn more about times and events depicted in the novels I'm reading. And so this week I found myself watching Ken Burns' series on the Dust Bowl. Um, And we could do an entire episode, Michael, on how we teach history in the U.S. The short answer is not well, as you know. Um, So what I can't get out of my mind is is that other than a few dates and random facts, I, I never learned about this. I never really learned about this period of history. And it has such relevance to what we're going through today. Um, And I just keep wondering, what if we all had learned history in a way that it was useful and helpful to our daily lives? You know, where would we be potentially in a better place? So to be continued some point. (laughs) That's a a good one, Diane. Uh, Both of you, I'm I'm, I'm feeling inadequate with whatever I'm going to say. But the uh, so I so I actually polished off a couple things this past week, but I'm going to stay actually on your theme, Diane. uh, because my wife and I finished uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's class on Masterclass uh, last night uh, and enjoyed it quite a bit. And of, of course, uh, she actually gets into the topic of how do you teach history and what really matters, uh, both in the teaching of history, but also, frankly, uh, how you take that for lessons of leadership and electing presidents and things of that nature. But she's such a good storyteller that that I always take things away from her insights. Uh, and, and I think storytelling is obviously a big piece of these narrative uh, shaping work that we do. And so I enjoyed it quite a bit. But good place uh, to wrap us up for this time. As you said, we could have, John, pestered you with questions for quite a while, but but we'll let you go and because it's been a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us on Class Disrupted. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.